The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Busy, Stressed, and Food Obsessed with host and author of the award-winning book of the same name, Lisa Lutan. Lisa has amazing tips to help you slow down, get healthy, manage your time, improve your relationships, and deal with stress. Now, here is Lisa Lutan. Hello, everyone. I am beyond excited for today's show. We're going to be talking about food addiction. Now, keep in mind, the name of this show is Busy, Stressed, and Food Obsessed, which is also the name of the book that I wrote, so you'll know why I am personally so interested in this topic. Even the words food addiction get questioned often. There's great debates around whether this is a real thing or not, and so my guest today is going to explain it to you in a way that will possibly change the way you think about food forever. So why should this interest you? Well... Maybe you're struggling to lose weight, or maybe you just don't understand why when you start eating one type of food, you just can't stop, even if you're full. Now, for those of you who follow me regularly, you know that I think of myself as a total sugar addict, and I often say that it has nothing to do with willpower. So if we don't understand our own personal triggers, we're never going to make the necessary changes to our diet so that we can stop stressing about food and just start living our lives. Which reminds me, my program, Eat to Thrive, my online program, will be taking place in mid-January, where we give up sugar, dairy, soy, gluten, and alcohol for a week just to see how we feel and get a jump start to clean eating in the new year. If you're interested in getting on the wait list, just text on your phone 44144 and enter the word healthy, and you'll get on the list. Again, text 44144. Answer the word healthy and it will tell you what to do. And if that is too tricky for you, just go on over to healthyhabbyandhip.com and connect with me. I look forward to hearing from you. Now, back to food addiction. My guest today is Susan Pierce Thompson, PhD. Susan is an adjunct associate professor of brain and cognitive sciences at the University of Rochester and is an expert in the psychology of eating. Her company, Brightline Eating Solutions, is dedicated to sharing the psychology and neuroscience of sustainable weight loss and helping people live happy, thin, and free. Her book, which is coming out shortly, is called Brightline Eating. I read it. I loved it. I'm so excited to talk about it today. And welcome, Susan, to the show. Oh, thank you, Lisa. It's so good to be here. So good to be here. And it's so great to have you. I am so excited. I have so many questions. But before we start <laughs> jumping into the book, I want to ask you my five questions that I ask every guest that comes on the show. The first okay. one is, what did you have for breakfast today? Oh, for breakfast, I had one ounce of gluten-free quinoa flakes made up with a dash of orange extract, some salt, 
and two ounces of unsweetened soy milk and four ounces of water cooked up in the microwave for three minutes. And then on top of that, I put six ounces of banana and blueberry, half an ounce of ground flax seeds, one and a half ounces of mixed nuts, and a bunch of cinnamon. It was delicious. I knew you would have a good answer for that question. (laughs) (laughs) Number two, what is your favorite form of exercise? My favorite form of exercise? Sex. (laughs) Okay. Fair enough. Um, what is a habit? I do squats and push-ups and I run on the treadmill. And, but you asked for my favorite, so I'm just being oh, honest. I, honesty is a great thing. Um, so what is a habit you are trying to either break or add to your life? Um, at the moment, I'm on track with my habits. I could tell you recent habits that I had to grapple with were um, I go back and forth on caffeine sometimes. And I think I'm like, I don't know, 15 or 16 days back on no caffeine. That for me includes no decaf because for me, decaf is a gateway drug back to caffeine because it has a little bit of caffeine in it. Um, And I I would say like rigorous exercise, like with a trainer kind of exercise is something that I'm looking forward to incorporating back in my life. My life has gotten so busy and overly full um, since Bright Line Eating was born a couple of years ago that, um, you know, really getting to the gym and doing intense exercise has been something that I I let go of from time to time when my schedule just is overflowing. I have three little kids and a really fulfilling marriage and all of the family life stuff plus the business stuff. It just takes a lot. So sometimes I let exercise go for a while. So what I'm doing right now is five minutes of high-intensity interval training in the morning. Just five minutes, it's amazing how much you can do. But I would like to get to the gym with a trainer and do some more exercise. So, yeah, that's about it. But I'm feeling pretty on track with my habits. My food is immaculate. My sleep is good. I'm meditating every day. Um, those, you know, those are the things that I need to do to stay on track. Awesome. And how do you spend the first hour of your day? Um, the first hour of my day is I wake up, I go to the bathroom, and while I'm sitting on the toilet, I read um, from three different spiritual slash meditation type books to put some good stuff into my mind. Um, I then go down into the basement and I pump out five minutes of super crazy, intense, heart-pumping exercise. Uh, then I come back upstairs and I meditate for 20 or 30 minutes, depending on what my morning looks like. And then I get on the phone with my tribe, um, my bright lifers, there's a couple thousand of them. And I do an accountability call where for 15 minutes, um, first we go through a roll call of like, did you eat what you committed to eat yesterday? Do you have your food written down for today? Have you meditated in the last 24 hours? Have you talked on the phone with another person? Who's supporting you in your eating journey? What's your other one habit that you're committed to doing? Did you do it in the last 24 hours? And that usually takes three minutes. And then for the other 12 minutes to round out the 15 minutes, I coach somebody live. So they just raise their hands. They bring up a problem or an issue. And so that accountability call happens at 7 a.m. Eastern time. And it's recorded. So all my Bright Lifers who can't be there live get to hear it. And that that rounds out the first hour of my day every day. (laughs) And who is someone in your life that inspires you? Someone in my life that inspires me? My husband. He's just uh, just so courageous and wise and grounded and loving. And he's, he just, he astounds me. 
Well, thank you. We, you have a fascinating story, Susan, about going from drug addict to weight loss expert. Would you like to share a little bit of that story with our listeners? Um, sure, yeah. Um, I do have a very addictable brain, and I am a bit of a wild child. So I was a good student as a kid, but by the time I was 14, I was kind of getting disenchanted with life already and uh, found drugs and loved them, uh, loved that they helped me lose weight and not think about food, loved that they helped me feel sort of renegade and counterculture, and loved that they helped me connect with people and feel spiritual and you know, kind of woo-woo and out there and, and love that they helped me sort of check out. And uh, so I, I got addicted to drugs from the age of 14 to the age of 20. I used them pretty hard. Um, it took me to pretty scary places. I, I, I don't um, use the term drug addict lightly. We're talking, you know, dropped out of high school, crystal meth, crack cocaine on the streets, um, pretty low bottom. And um, at the age of 20, I got struck clean and sober, um, a gift for which I can never be sufficiently grateful. So I haven't had a drink or a drug in 22 and a half years. And that's pretty much the foundation of my life. But after that, I got fat really fast. I knew I would, you know, without, without crack cocaine to manage your weight. Like my, my neurotransmitters were shot and I knew that I would turn to food right away. And I did. And um, that started, I guess it was eight and a half years or so of just searching high, low, and everywhere for a solution to my food addiction, which was, you know, I think it preceded my drug addiction. I was already addicted to food as a young kid, addicted to sugar, certainly, probably by the age of five. And um, so meanwhile, though, because food addiction is less hard on the sort of life in general than drug addiction in terms of, you know, you can be a food addict and still function, typically, in everyday society, um, I did well from that point academically after I got clean and sober when I was 20. I went to community college, got my GED equivalency, um, transferred to UC Berkeley, got straight A's, spoke at the graduation, got a free ride to get my PhD anywhere I wanted. I picked the University of Rochester because it just had the most amazing research happening in my field, which is brain and cognitive sciences. Finished my PhD in 2003, did a two-year postdoc in psychology at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. And then came back to the States and became a psychology professor, which I did and got tenure and all that stuff for the next 10, 11, 12, 13 years, however long it was, up until 2015. Um, when, you know, so I started teaching college courses on the psychology of eating, um, the neuroscience of food addiction, positive psychology, just things that, that I really love. And, um, and at, and at some point, I did finally lose all my excess weight <laughs> uh, back when I was 28 years old, back in 2003, um, right as I was finishing my PhD and moving to Sydney for my postdoc. I, I lost my excess weight. I've been slender now for whatever that is, 13 years. Um, so I went from obese to slender in six months. And, um, and the lessons that I learned in doing that and in coaching now thousands and thousands of people um, plus, you know, the academic science that I taught in my college course on the psychology of eating and the neuroscience of food addiction, um, that's all now in my book. And this, this beautiful movement, Brightline Eating, has been born out of my pretty ridiculous, long, tragic suffering with food and addiction and, you know, not being able to control myself around all kinds of things. And, uh, yeah, that's kind of my story. Like I said, it's, it's an amazing, fascinating story. And kudos to you for turning your life around like that. 
It's amazing. Mm. Now, I'm sure other people are asking the same question that I have. How did you go from obese to slender in six months? Well, I... I was, um, you know, I got clean and sober in a 12-step program. And so when I realized that my food problem was pretty much like my drug problem, I tried the 12-step program. And um, it, it kind of didn't really work the same way because um, it, it wasn't really clear what the first drink or drug was. It wasn't really clear what I was supposed to do with the food. Um, I did finally find a 12-step program. There are a lot of different 12-step food programs. There's like at least eight, I think, seven or eight that have significant membership. And they all deal with the food slightly differently. And so what finally happened was I kept exploring different ways of putting boundaries around food to make it work, like, like sort of the abstinence model is you have to, you have to figure out what your boundaries are because you're going to have to eat, right? So um, what happened was I, I finally you know, found someone who showed me boundaries that worked. And I fell in with a community of people in the 12-step world that were doing something that really worked. Um, And uh, yeah, and that's what happened. And so while you were doing that, you figured out which foods that you were addicted to or that people in general were addicted to. How did that happen? Yeah, I think it's people in general. So it's kind of neat. What, what, what those years of my life did is they gave me the end point. They're like, here's a template for a solution that works. And then what I did after that was I figured out the science behind why. So those were the questions that I started answering myself, uh, asking Lisa exactly is, you know, um, what's up with why this version worked and nothing else did. And I think the answer is, um, uh, well, it's not all people. So, uh, here's the thing, Lisa, not everybody's addictable. <laughs> Some brains are just not addictable. And there's good research on this, both in humans and in rats. Um, about one third of the population has a brain that's just not addictable no matter what you give it. You give it heroin. And it, it's like, yeah, that's nice. I'm not really that interested. It's fascinating. Some people are just not even addicted, addicted, addictable to heroin. Um, so addiction's not really in the substance. It's in the brain. But there are substances that, given a susceptible brain, are highly addictive. Those substances include heroin, cocaine, nicotine, caffeine, alcohol, sugar, and flour. And sugar and flour are way more addictable, addictive than caffeine, alcohol, and nicotine. They're up there with heroin and cocaine. Maybe even sugar might even be past cocaine um, on the addiction spectrum. Um, but I don't want to say they're addictive to everybody because some brains aren't, aren't addictable. They're just not. Are some brains addictable to some of those substances and not to others? Or do we tend to be just a highly addictable person or not? Yeah, so that's a, such a good question. Such a good question. Um, here's my theory of the way that works. Um, I believe that some brains are just addictable and some brains are just not but within the spectrum of addictable brains, those people tend to get addicted to some of the addictable things and not to others based on, you know, experience with um, certain cue response associations. Like basically they get, they get the, the brain gets a taste of the fix in a certain domain, whether it's shopping or gambling or food or alcohol or whatever. And there's a salient uh, experience of the fix. 
and then later experiences and later experiences that are all tied in with certain cues that predict the availability of that reward in that domain. And the brain gets wired to look for those cues, identify those cues, be pulled in by those cues. If you don't have that experiential driver in the real world around the cues that predict those particular rewards, even an addictable brain can fail to sort of identify the addictive power of a certain addictive substance. Does that make sense? Like if you look at alcoholics... They stop drinking. Some of them start eating sugar. Some of them start having sex compulsively. Some of them start shopping compulsively. But they don't all sort of do all of them. Um, they do the ones that their brains have experience, you know, getting a hit from in their environment. So I think, I think addictable brains could be addicted to anything, but they don't actually get addicted to everything necessarily. It depends on their experience. And we have a couple minutes before break, just maybe about two minutes. We can start talking about how do we even know if we are one of those addictive brains? Well, um, I think two ways. One, look at your experience. People probably have a sense of whether they are addictable or not. If someone's wondering in the domain of food, I have a quiz that can tell them. I have a susceptibility quiz. It's five questions, and it'll tell you how susceptible your brain is to the pull of addictive foods. Um, yeah, and I so, am very highly susceptible. Apparently, after doing your you quiz, really the quiz, what's your score? I, it was like top. It was really You're up there. Yeah, the scale goes from one to ten. Um, then mm-hmm. ten is high. Yeah, that, and that means that you have a brain that's going to need a lot of management around food. You know, you're not going to just be able to do an ad libitum, eat whatever, whenever kind of plan and be peaceful you know, and at ease in your body and with the food you're eating. It just doesn't work that way if you're a 10. Oh, I know. <laughs> I have discovered that the hard way. But the good news is that I am in a normal weight range. And be like, why am I such a freak? Why does everybody else get to eat a bite of cake and have a free pass? Like, why does this tr- drive me crazy, right? I mean, I think it's really helpful to know that different brains are different. That it's, you know, you're not a freak. You just have a brain that works differently. Some people are tall. Some people are short. Some people are highly susceptible to addictive foods. Some people are not. You know, it's just kind of the way it's the, the, the way the cards are dealt. Yeah, and I think once you have that information, it's just so powerful. Like you get over it and you say, hey, I just can't do that. And I, like I said, I'm a sugar addict. We are going to be going to break right now. But when we come back, we're going to continue talking with my amazing guest, Susan Pierce Thompson, about food addiction and in particular, what foods are really, really problems and highly addictive for us. Stay tuned. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Are you a busy, stressed, and hungry go-getter who knows what to do to get healthier but has trouble doing it? The problem with popular diets is that they were designed for other people, not you. Sure, they might work for the short term, but for the longer term results, you need a plan designed specifically for your unique body and lifestyle. How about the stress in your life? Do you ever stop and take a deep breath? Do you know what all this stress is doing to your health? Healthy living strategist and author of Busy, Stressed, and Food Obsessed, Lisa Lutan will get you on your way with coaching, online courses and challenges, and even retreats. You will learn tips and strategies to help you calm down, get healthy, and make you feel and look better than ever. 
for a limited time, Lisa Lutan is offering a free 15-minute breakthrough session to help you get started feeling better right away. Just visit HealthyHappyAndHip.com to get your free 15-minute breakthrough strategy session. That's HealthyHappyAndHip. Yes, you heard it right. HealthyHappyAndHip.com and enter your info in the contact page. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You are listening to Busy, Stressed, and Food Obsessed. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. Feel like sending an email instead? Send it to Lisa at HealthyHappyAndHip.com. Now, back to Busy, Stressed, and Food Obsessed. Here again is Lisa Lutan. Welcome back, everyone. I'm talking about food addiction with Susan Pierce Thompson, PhD. We're going to start figuring out which of the foods we should stay away from. And if you have any questions, feel free to call in because this is really important stuff. So, Susan, what are the most highly addictive foods and why? Um, the addictive foods really are foods made out of sugar and flour, um, I know there's a lot of talk about fat and salt, but fat and salt are addictive when you layer them on top of sugar and flour. It's the base of sugar and flour that does the trick. Um, And when you ask why, I think there's two main drivers. Um, Some of it boils down to metabolic effect, like sugar and flour are processed in a way that spikes blood sugar and therefore spikes insulin and gives a rush of dopamine to the nucleus accumbens. And I really think that rush of dopamine to the nucleus accumbens is the smoking gun. And um, uh, if, if, if folks don't know, the nucleus accumbens is the reward center of the brain. It's, um, it's fueled by dopamine. Dopamine is D2, is the dopamine, it's a kind of dopamine receptor that's the primary um, uh, receptor there. So you've got dopamine and it floods in and it creates a rush that basically serves ultimately to um, affect our motivation to go seek out certain future hits. And um, so, it, you know, if, if, we, if we give that part of the brain a massive rush, it's going to force us to go seek out that hit again. Um, if we do that enough times, the dopamine receptors there will downregulate, which means they'll thin out their dopamine receptors and leave us in a, in a state of dopamine depletion unless we're getting our fix. So this is where sugar and flour become sort of necessary on a daily basis over and over and over again. Um, so, um, yeah, so anything that's going to flood the brain with the nucleus accumbens with dopamine is, is technically, um, scientifically, by definition, addictive. Um, And this is why I think that you mentioned that um, food addiction is a controversial concept. Um, I think that that's not going to last very long because the reality is that sugar and flour work in the brain just like heroin and cocaine. They flood the nucleus accumbens with dopamine and they make those receptors downregulate. And when you look at an fMRI study of someone who's obese and has been eating sugar and flour in massive quantities, their brains look like the brain of a heroin or a cocaine addict, completely decimated dopamine receptors in that area. So you don't find addiction experts who study the brain 
um, fighting about whether food addiction exists. You find people who are clinicians who've been trained to treat anorexics and bulimics and other people who have a bias to think there's no bad foods. People who have food issues need to look at their inner issues and they need to sort out you know, their relationship with food and thinking of there being bad foods is not helpful to that process. That's really the direction where the sort of controversy is coming from, people who don't like to think of there being bad foods because they're psychologists who are trained as clinicians. But if you talk to neuroscientists who study addiction in the brain, they're like, yeah, there's really no debate here. This is, this is addiction by definition. That is so interesting because there is in this nutrition world, there are so many different schools of thought on that, you know, about omitting foods in general, about everything. So I love that you clarify that. And there was something that I read in your book that I found absolutely fascinating. You talked about cocaine and heroin and sugar and flour and how they started in plant form, but when they were turned yeah. into a powder, that's when yeah. they became, they, and can you talk about that? Because I, I was blown away by reading that. Yeah, I think people haven't thought very deeply about drugs and where they come from and how they're made and what makes something into a drug because heroin and cocaine in their natural form are not addictive. They're not drugs. If you look at the poppy plant, which is where heroin comes from, you can sit in a field of poppies and eat them all day long and you won't even get that high. You'll, you, you, you'll fail a piss test for opium. Like you'll actually get opium into your system but you won't get addicted and you won't get high. You're just eating poppies. You're eating flowers in a, plant, in a field, right? Um, but when you take the inner essence of that poppy plant and you refine and you purify it into a fine brown powder, you've now taken a, a healthy, normal, edible, plant-based substance and you've turned it into a drug. And cocaine is the same. It comes from the coca leaf in Colombia and you've got, you know, climbers in the mountains of the, of, of the Andes of, you know, climbing around and chewing on those coca leaves. They put them in their inner cheek and they chew on them. It makes their inner cheek a little numb and it gives them a tiny lift, like uh, maybe equivalent to drinking half a cup of caffeinated tea. Nobody's getting addicted to it. There's actually a, a research paper published showing that it's actually not addictive. Coca leaves are not addictive. But when you take their inner essence and then you refine and you purify it down into a fine white powder, you've now created a drug. And that's exactly what sugar and flour are. You take whole natural plant foods like wheat or rice or barley or beets or corn or sugar cane and you take those whole foods and then you take their inner essence and you extract it and you refine and you purify it down into a powder and you've taken a food and turned it into a drug. And that's exactly the way the brain responds to it is like a drug. So... I think that for some listeners, they're hearing this and they're like, what? Flour's a drug? Like, yeah, I know it's fattening or whatever, but is it really a drug? So explain your philosophy on should people have any flour? Should they have a little flour? Same with sugar. What is your philosophy for bright line eaters? Well, you know, my so let me just say that my philosophy is um, it's, it's varied because people are different and bright line eating is not for everybody. If somebody has goals in mind and a history <laughs> that makes them, you know, come to me on their knees and say, Susan, I have tried everything. I cannot lose weight. I'm crazy with food. You've got to help me. Then I say, well, my philosophy is you've got to quit sugar and flour and you've got to quit them like a three-pack-a-day smoker quits smoking. You're not going to quit smoking and think, you know, well, but I'll let myself have 
a cigarette if it's a really good party and my friends are smoking. I'll have one, right? You, you know, success doesn't come with it. With a real addiction, success doesn't come from trying to implement some kind of plan of moderation. Um, but not everybody has that kind of problem and not everybody wants that kind of um, rigor in their life, which I'm fine with. Like, I, I'm, I always say I'm not the bright line eating police. Like, I'm not going to come knock on your door if you have a piece of cake. It's just that the reality is that I think people really underestimate, Lisa, how hard it is to lose weight and keep it off. People, people are walking around, I think, thinking that long-term sustainable weight loss is possible and happening all around them. The reality is it's not really. Nobody's losing weight and keeping it off. If you look at the numbers, there's a great study published recently that showed that of the obese, 1% will get down to goal weight. 1%. And of that 1%, almost all of them will gain back the weight over the next few years. So we've got something like 1 one-hundredth of 1% of people succeeding at this weight loss game. And I think a big part of that reason is that our societal zeitgeist, our ethos here is all around, you know, moderation, don't be too extreme, it's not realistic to think about cutting out those foods. I've been doing this for 13 years, and I'll tell you, it's a lot easier to not eat any ice cream than to try to eat one serving of ice cream. It's just a lot easier. Oh, I totally agree with you. I mean, I run programs on getting sugar out of your system, and literally in a week, people change their life. Like, it's fascinating how quickly getting it out of your system can make you suddenly more interested in vegetables. So I'm on totally on the same page. But and I do work also, I work with very healthy eaters that can't lose weight. And I think that this is probably one of the culprits underneath of this. They're doing everything right, they think. But if they're still eating these foods, which brings me to a question about you know, seemingly healthy foods. We are inundated right now with recipes (laughs) that include coconut flour, almond flour, you know, other foods like that. Are those still considered flour in the same way? Uh, Yeah, flour, the the issue is the refining process. It's the breaking down of the food into a little particle, into a powder. It's the taking of the, the inner essence and refining and purifying it into a powder. That's the process you want to avoid. So, um, and, and I can speak about these seemingly healthy foods. Health food stores are just rife with, you know, packaged foods that are no better. You might as well just go get yourself a Twinkie. Um, you know, I think the, the gluten-free aisle is a classic example of that. You just look at package after package. It's basically sugar and flour, sugar and flour, sugar and flour. They're, they're you know, it'd be, it's not wheat flour, but instead they're using rice flour and potato starch, and then they're mixing in some date syrup and some agave syrup, and they've created basically a dessert with sugar and flour. I mean, if you take something and it's gluten-free and it's organic and it's locally sourced and it's non-GMO, if it's crack cocaine, it's still crack cocaine. I don't care if it's... Crack is gluten-free and (laughs) non-GMO. So, yeah. So what about something (laughs) like ground foods? I, am, I encourage people to eat food food, like around the perimeter of the grocery store, like no, no ingredient list kind of foods. Right. But what about ground flax, something like that? Yeah, ground flax is, um, well, first of all, you know, the kind of grinding that they do to make flour is maybe a little different than the kind of grinding. You know, you've got you to gotta break up the flax seed for the body to digest it. So, yeah, I had, I had flax meal for my breakfast this morning, so that's an exception. It turns out that chickpeas are a little bit of an exception, too. You can ground up chickpeas, and hummus does not affect the blood sugar like a flour-based product does. So there's a couple of exceptions in the metabolic world. 
Um, and those are two of them. Would almond meal be something like that, like ground up almonds? You know, Lisa, I don't know. And and what I when, when I get that question, what I throw back in them is for what purpose? Like almond meal for what? Are you going to try to make muffins out of it? Probably not a good idea. If you're going to coat your chicken in it and put it in a frying pan, uh, might be okay, you know. Um, so, you know, I when I kind of started to identify myself as a food addict, I started to really get pretty simple with my food. When I eat green beans, I eat green beans. Um, you know, I steam them and I eat them. Um, I put salt and pepper on them, but, you know. Um, so I know there are people out there who really love to cook and use recipes and stuff like that. And so in Bright Line Eating, we do kind of bend over backwards to help them navigate and, you know, find out ways to use things that are safe. I don't know about almond flour, to be honest. Um, it might be okay, especially in moderation. Um, for someone who's really high on the susceptibility, like a 10 on the susceptibility scale, I would say try to keep your food simple and not be making anything that you need to eat sugar or flour. It's just not worth it. But um, that's really up to them. Yeah, I agree. I find that's how I have to live because otherwise it's just trouble with even even vegetables. I eat too many vegetables. <laughs> that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah, but you know, really, when oh, you're high God. susceptibility, you oh, just can't stop. Roasted butternut squash? Oh, my God, I could eat 10 pounds of that. Five Same. honey crisp apples. No, even even just, just basic produce I have to be careful with too, which is why I weigh my food on a digital food scale, which I know people must think is crazy. But what I got to say to that is try it and you'll just see how much peace comes after you just realize, oh, I have the right amount of food and then I move on and I don't have to think about it at all and I weigh what I want to weigh and it's just actually a lot of freedom comes from weighing your food. But yeah, I can overeat just about anything. But, you know, let's talk about that for a second, because there's people, I I know that you are a big advocate of weighing food and portion control, which obviously is very important when you're trying to lose weight. But what about people who just don't feel full? You know, they can weigh their food, they can do everything, but they're eating it and they go, I'm starving. You know, what would you recommend for someone like that? Um, The modern foods and modern patterns of eating absolutely positively, positively do break the signals between the stomach and the brain. They really do. And there are some of us, I'm one of them, who just have a broken regulator system. And for some of us, that means that we don't feel full. Um, And what I recommend is weigh your food then and just regulate it from the outside. Um, I don't personally think that... If anyone's had a chronic weight problem, my, my honest professional opinion is that the odds of them getting down to a right-sized body and living there forever based on their own eyeballs and mental estimation of how much food they should be eating based on their signals of hunger and satiety, not going to happen. Um, that's, that's just what I've seen. People's, people's regulators are just broken. So use a scale and weigh your food. And if you don't feel full, then make a phone call. Pray, do a crossword puzzle, do something else. Get, get, get your mind off the food. Another meal is coming. Leave the kitchen. And what about snacking? I know you're not a big snacking fan. No, three meals a day. So many reasons for that. Um, yeah, snacking is such a big bugaboo. I mean, it's no wonder that nobody's succeeding at losing weight because they're being told to go to the gym and eat six small meals a day and eat everything in moderation. It's just such, um, yeah, bad guidance in terms of what really works. Three meals a day are just, I mean, gosh. Okay, so some of the reasons are, number one, um, well, first of all, if you just think about it, it, given our food culture and given how unreliable willpower is through the day, if you're giving yourself license to eat all day long, there's just no way to make it to bedtime without eating more food than your body needs. 
So just the first one is just cutting down the choice points and cutting down the opportunities for overconsumption. That's the first one. The second one is there's so much research on um, giving your body time to digest its food and having fasting windows in between your eating. Like when you only eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner, that means every night after dinner, you're going to have a good 13 hours or so before you eat breakfast again. And there's so much research on the processes that happen physiologically in the body when you give it that long of a stretch regularly without food. The, the process is called autophagy, which means the healing and recycling of damaged and poorly working cellular parts. So if you want to stay young and you want to be healthy and you want to feel fit and alive, you need to give your body hours at a time without eating because autophagy only kicks in after you've been fasting for quite a long time. So um, it'll happen in the morning before breakfast. Drink a big glass of water right upon awakening, and then those last few hours before you eat breakfast, that's when your autophagy is happening. If you've eaten late at night, and then you're having cream in your coffee at 6 a.m., basically you have got, you've got like a seven-hour fasting window, it kills that. Your, ne- your cells are never healing and, and repairing themselves. Um, so no wonder you feel tired and exhausted, and you're aging too quickly. Um, another big reason that three meals a day are better than six is that the whole, the whole game of getting your food right, like getting healthy with your food is a game of pushing your eating choices out of the prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that decides and, and thinks, will I, won't I, and has to make a decision about it to the basal ganglia, the part of the brain that executes tasks automatically without any thought at all. Like the part, the basal ganglia is the part of the brain that brushes your teeth every day for you. You don't have to decide to do it. You don't have to have a sticky note on the mirror. You don't have to set a New Year's resolution to brush your teeth. You don't have to pump yourself up for it. It just gets done. And it gets done whether you're traveling, whether you're exhausted, whether you've been at a party, whether you've gotten enough sleep, you just brush your teeth. And that's the part of the brain you want putting your breakfast bowl together. That's the part of your brain that you want getting your dinner salad ready. That's the part of your brain that you want active. And three meals a day are automatizable because your breakfast can be wired into your morning routine, your dinner can be wired into your evening routine, and your lunch can be wired into your midday sort of stopping point routine. All the time of day and location cues are going to serve just like the time of day and location cues that serve you to brush your teeth. You do it because it's a certain time of day and you're standing near the bathroom and all of those things that you just automatically go brush your teeth. You can get breakfast, lunch, and dinner as automatic as that. If you try to introduce six meals a day, you're sunk. There's no way you can automate six meals a day. Susan, we are going to go to break, but I want to continue this conversation because I think that turning these things into habits is just such a helpful tip for our listeners. So stay tuned, everybody. We'll be back in a moment. We're talking about food addiction. We're talking about not snacking, not eating sugar and flour, and so much more to talk about after the break. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Are you a busy, stressed, and hungry go-getter who knows what to do to get healthier but has trouble doing it? The problem with popular diets is that they were designed for other people, not you. Sure, they might work for the short term, but for the longer term results, you need a plan designed specifically for your unique body and lifestyle. How about the stress in your life? Do you ever stop and take a deep breath? Do you know what all this stress is doing to your health? Healthy living strategist and author of Busy, Stressed, and Food Obsessed, 
Lisa Lutan will get you on your way with coaching, online courses and challenges, and even retreats. You will learn tips and strategies to help you calm down, get healthy, and make you feel and look better than ever. For a limited time, Lisa Lutan is offering a free 15-minute breakthrough session to help you get started feeling better right away. Just visit HealthyHappyAndHip.com to get your free 15-minute breakthrough strategy session. That's HealthyHappyAndHip. Yes, you heard it right. HealthyHappyAndHip.com and enter your info in the contact page. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. You are listening to Busy, Stressed, and Food Obsessed. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. Feel like sending an email instead? Send it to Lisa at healthyhappyandhip.com. Now, back to Busy, Stressed, and Food Obsessed. Here again is Lisa Lutan. Hi, welcome back. We're having an amazing conversation about food addiction. My guest today is Susan Pierce Thompson, PhD. And we're talking about sugar and flour and should we snack or not snack? Actually, we should not snack. And so many more questions. And Susan, one of the things that many of my clients who are women in their 40s, 50s and and older struggle with is they wake up early and they have an early breakfast and then they want an early lunch, but then they want to wait to eat dinner with the family. And that gives them a very big gap of time between lunch and dinner. And so I'm questioning, are there certain times of day that people should be eating these three meals? Or do you have to, you know, kind of figure it out based on your own life? Uh, Yes and yes. (laughs) So I basically recommend eating meals at mealtime. So breakfast at breakfast time, you know, six, seven, eight, nine o'clock, lunch at lunchtime, you know, 11, 12, one o'clock, and dinner at dinner time, five, six, seven o'clock. Um, now, I do know from having worked with thousands of people that some people are fine eating at regular meal times, and some people are early eaters, and some people are late eaters. So I'm an early eater. I had an early breakfast this morning. I had my lunch at like 1030, and I might wait to eat dinner with my family at six, which would be a long gap, or I might eat my dinner a little earlier. Um, in general, it's good to eat your meals four to six hours apart. And if you're eating the Bright Line Eating way, like if you're really being careful about food, your meal composition, you'll make it from meal to meal. I think where people um, feel like they need to snack or they feel like they have hypoglycemia, I got a lot of people coming to me who say they have hypoglycemia, but the reality is after two or three weeks on my food plan, that's gone. Like their, their blood sugar is very steady. Um, so it's really something important to keep in mind is that if you're eating any sugar or flour or you're not eating um, enough protein or fat to ground out your carbohydrate, your vegetables and your fruits, um, then that's, then you're not going to have enough staying power to get through meals. Now, I'm not talking about you have to eat meat. I'm, there's you know plenty of vegans in the Bright Line Eating community. Um, you just need to eat some kind of you know, macronutrient you know, coming from protein and some coming from fat at each meal. And I think also something we touched upon lightly before was we have to understand why we're eating. You know, why at that time are we starving? Do we just need a break? Are we tired? Do we need a, to call a friend? Because a lot of the emotional eating issues do come in in the late afternoon 
when we're, we're starting yeah. to slow down. So I think that's always an important thing as well. And I love that you said you're an early eater. I'm an early eater too. And I get a lot of abuse for it. <laughs> like sometimes I'll have lunch <laughs> at 1030 and I want dinner at three or four. Yeah. Um, it's just hard to live in the real world and have a social life when you like to eat like that. Which gets me to my next... I mean, although I'm at the point now where I wouldn't mind going out with friends. They can eat dinner and I'm just going to have sparkly water with lime and I'm going to focus on the people and the conversation. I've learned to be pretty comfortable with other people eating without, with me not having to eat. So, you know, sometimes I'll save my dinner and go out to dinner with friends at 7.30 or 8 o'clock at night, but other times I will. I'll eat my dinner early and I'll still go with them and I'll have fun. Which is great, but sometimes other people feel a little uncomfortable, don't you find, in that circumstance? You know, even though you're okay with it, don't they feel a little bit strange or no? Yeah, sometimes, sometimes. And I think it's it's one of the things that, um, like, I don't know what it was like for people in the 1960s and 70s when people started to quit smoking, you know, when in the 1950s everybody smoked, whether it was uncomfortable for people, like, hey, we're all smoking, don't you want to smoke? You know, these days, is it uncomfortable for people if I don't have champagne on New Year's Eve? I don't know, you know. Um, I say, no, thank you. I don't drink. Um, I, I do know that we have a long way to go in our society understanding the basic reality that um, the way we're eating as a collective society is not working for us, right? Two-thirds of us are overweight or obese. A third of our kids are going to you know, develop diabetes, half of them, uh, half of the kids of color are going to develop diabetes. We're eating ourselves into the poorhouse. So at some point, those of us who say no thank you to that standard way of eating, which includes eating all the time, eating baked goods if someone's baked them specially for you, eating pumpkin pie on Thanksgiving, you know, having your kids eat off the restaurant kids menu, which has no good food on it, basically, you know, at some point, some of us are going to have to say, you know, I'm not comfortable going with the flow of our collective eating patterns. What I'm doing is not extreme. What everybody else is doing is extreme, as evidenced by the fact that it's, you know, it's, it's, it's unsustainable in every way for our environment, for our bodies, and for our finances, So, yeah, I think other people can get uncomfortable sometimes. I think that in general, we're getting a lot better with that, where if you say no thank you to food because you have a practice of being healthy and eating in a specific way and you don't really make exceptions, the people around you learn that. And, um, yeah, there might be some people who don't even want to be your friend anymore. And in general, that happened to me when I got clean and sober. There are people that I stopped being friends with because we had a lot less in common when I stopped using drugs. So, um, I think, and I think all that's those very common. Things, I don't want to poo-poo those social things. They're they're real no. for sure. I think they are real, and I know that I uh, one of my courses take a boost news when people who drink a lot take a break from drinking. That's the biggest issue. They're like people aren't going to think I'm fun anymore. I don't have a social life. So I think these are very real issues, but I also think that we do have to step up and say nobody else is going to take care of me and my body except for me. And when we start taking responsibility, everything shifts so much. And one other thing I see all the time, I'm sure you do too, is mom saying, I don't want to deprive my kids of Oreos, you know, ice cream. And I love to point out that you you shouldn't really deprive them of love or education, but you're just setting them up for the same patterns that you're dealing with right now. And that's not really a gift to your children at all. Yeah. 
Well, Lisa, you just opened a big Pandora's box, the topic of feeding kids. It's a big one. <laughs> Should we yeah. go there? It's a, yeah, it's let's a go there. Three kids. Do you have any kids, Lisa? I do. My kids are a little bit older. My youngest is 18, so I've been through this. But um, how old are your kids? They're eight, younger? Eight and five. They're all girls. Okay. Eight, eight and five. So let's talk about that. What? How yeah. do you... What are your tips for parents who want to feed their kids healthy in the world where where they are given brownies after soccer practice? I know. Um, Well, the number one thing is the reality is your kids will grow up to eat like you eat. So pay attention to yourself first. Make sure that you're eating your vegetables and not like with fanfare and like a whole bunch of hullabaloo. Make sure you just eat them every day. Like it ain't no thing. You know, it's just what you do. And the second thing is nobody ever grew to like healthy food because they were forced to eat it. So um, I follow something called the division of responsibility, which is an Ellen Satter concept. Um, she's a nutritionist. You can look up her, her, look her up online, E-L-L-Y-N-S-A-T-T-E-R. I promote her stuff. She does not believe in food addiction. She and I couldn't have more different food philosophies for feeding adults. Um, however, I think her guidelines for feeding kids are brilliant, so I share them freely. Um, and... Uh, the main division of responsibility is the parent's job is to determine when the meal is happening, to make sure it happens, to get the food on the table, to decide what's being served, and yeah, so the when, where, and what, that's the parent's job, basically to provide the meal. And then the kid's job is to decide whether and how much to eat from what's provided, which is really great because it means as a parent, your job is not to make your kids eat any particular thing on the table or to make sure they eat enough or not too much or anything like that. As soon as you put out the food, you become deaf, dumb, and blind. And that's really helpful because when you're cooking and the kids say, what's for dinner? And you say, you know, rice, chicken, broccoli, salad, you know, and and strawberries. And they say, I don't like any of that food. There's nothing here for me to eat. You can say, you can shrug and say, you don't have to eat anything you don't want to eat. And they shut up pretty quick because they know it's true. You've never forced them to eat a single bite of food in their whole lives. So they got no comeback for that. You don't have to eat anything you don't like. And then the food's out on the table and they're whining and complaining and you say, you know, that's fine, sweetie. You don't have to eat if you don't want to eat. And then five minutes later, you find them eating a strawberry. (laughs) And then they're having a few bites of chicken. All three of my kids love broccoli. All three of my kids love Brussels sprouts. And it's not because I've ever had them eat them. It's just because they're on the table very often and I'm eating them, and those, so they kind of sneak up on them. So, yeah, it takes the pressure off, the, the division of responsibility. It really does. And I always think it's so funny, like, parents will go, well, you have to eat your broccoli, but you never hear them say, you have to eat your raspberries. You know, it's like we, we automatically go, would you like some a cookie, honey? You know, just like parents aren't realizing the tone of their voice is, is just putting foods in different categories right from the start. Yeah. Like, this is special and this isn't. And I remember, you know, when I started really getting just so into vegetables and going, oh, I'm so excited for my, you know, my cauliflower. (laughs) My kids would look at me like I was insane, but now they love cauliflower. So I do Mm -hmm. think there is so much of the messaging, you know, that we're putting out there. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, I just think it's so, so important. But, you know, going back to adults now for a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. I want to, I'm sure our listeners have a ton of questions and even things like products they might eat, like Ezekiel bread. Is that right. something that is okay? Um, 
So Ezekiel bread is a question mark. It's not really on the bright line eating plan, but if someone's like a five or a six on the susceptibility scale, once they lose their weight, we have um, a category of food called grain. So we eat grain and that could be rice or whatever. If someone prefers the paleo version, they could eat sweet potato or something instead of rice. Um, And Ezekiel bread could count as a grain. You could try it. It doesn't have flour in it. So technically it should be okay. Um, I do, you know, other examples of that include bean pastas made by Explore Asian, um, you know, various things like that. And the question is, you know, try them and see how they work. And I've, I give people a process of four questions for them to ask themselves. Um, and they can ask, you know, um, do I have peace around it? Like if I eat that Ezekiel bread, am I then thinking about it for the rest of the day? Am I planning how I'm going to have it the next day? I tend to really prefer when my food disappears for me and I'm not thinking about it at all. Um, very like neutral would be the word. And that's, you know, Lisa, you might relate as a 10 on the susceptibility scale. You reach a point where you feel like you've given so much of your life to food. You're over it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. honestly, if I could just never. I want to be bored. <laughs> I don't <laughs> want to be as excited about my food. But Susan, yeah. we're coming to the end of the show, and I want to make sure you have time to tell people how they can reach you, learn more about you, your programs, your books, book. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think taking a quiz would be a first step, you know. So go to my website and take the quiz and see how you you know, stack out on the susceptibility scale, you know, one is low and 10 is high. And once you have that information, you're empowered because you can, you know, think if, if something like bright line eating would be a good fit for you, if you're high enough on the susceptibility scale that, you know, you're really ready to do something about it, then something like bright line eating would be a good fit. If, if you're lower on the scale and you've just got weight to lose, bright line eating is um, according to our data that we've been collecting that scientists are now writing up papers to, to publish it's the most effective weight loss program on planet Earth. So um, even if you're not high on the susceptibility scale, it might be a good fit for you. So you can just head over to brightlineeating.com and check it out. So that's B-R-I-G-H-T, brightline, L-I-N-E, brightlineeating.com. Um, and the quiz is right at the top of the page. So I would just say take the quiz, see, see how, what kind of brain you have, how susceptible to food addiction you are, and then um, go from there. And, and what's the date of the book release? March 21st. It's a great book, everybody. I got a little sneak peek at it, and I really recommend it. There were lots of... I love it because it has the science behind all of my... Everything that I write about in Busy Stress and Food Obsessed where I don't have the science in there because I kept it more kind of personal and anecdotal. But all the Mm -hmm. science behind everything I say is in this Bright Line Eating book. So anyway, Susan, it was such a pleasure having you on the show today and and thank you for sharing all your knowledge thank you lisa it's really been great being here with you i feel like we could talk for days days (laughs) i i haven't even tapped into my questions but listeners Mm. thank you for tuning in today remember this is lisa lutan i can't even speak excuse me from busy stressed and food obsessed radio Check out my website, healthyhappyandhip.com. Send me a note or text 44144 and type the word healthy and I will send you some information about my Eat to Thrive program, which is starting mid-January. We're going to take a break from sugar, dairy, soy, gluten, and alcohol. Just experiment. This is all experimenting to see how you feel and just kind of reset yourself back for healthy eating. 
So it has been a pleasure and I'll see you next week. you've enjoyed today's episode on busy stressed and food obsessed did you get some great ideas from today's show join lisa lutan again next thursday at 9 a.m pacific time and 12 noon eastern time on the voice america health and wellness channel have a great week